Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book 10, chapter 6. Siblings drinking back at the beach. Is this bringing them closer together? Maybe. <coughs> oh, excuse me. TA131901 says, well, looks like everyone is unhappy. Not just Tom, Tony and Christian. Yeah, it did just seem like, what's wrong with everyone? Everyone in this chapter was miserable. Except maybe Tony at the end. But um, in general, I'd say Tony is still pretty miserable. I thought this was a pretty heavy-handed chapter a rather, rather, and rather repetitive. Do we learn anything new about the Buddenbrooks? My mum read a lot of world literature when she was young. This was in the USSR. She saw my copy of Buddenbrooks and said that man was translated and read in Soviet countries, though I don't know which works were available. Well, this is a chapter that a Soviet censor would love. Look at all those capitalist boogies being utterly miserable. Chasing money and conspicuous consumption has corrupted their health and their souls. Interesting. Mm. What's the... <coughs> I guess, like, is that just like the... the uh, I was going to say the, the, the cliche, but it's more like a... It's more like... Uh... What's the word? Oh, shit, my brain's not working. I've got the worst COVID brain right now. Post-COVID. I don't have COVID anymore, but my brain does not want to think. Propaganda is, I guess, the word. You know? Soviet propaganda that capitalists are just so obsessed with consumption that they make themselves sick. Techrific says that. It's really funny. Yeah, everybody seemed to be in a rot, and then the business world seemed to be in decline for everyone. Thomas is almost relishing in his midlife crisis. I'm, I guess there's something liberating in dropping the pretense. As to your question, if we learned anything about the Buddenbrooks, I guess we didn't. But it was interesting to see them all get along for once. That was acceptance there, if not anything else. FDLP1 says, Extended time with Tony at the beach and no silly goof reference. We haven't seen the last of the geese, question mark. It's too bad when Thomas caught up with Hanno at the same resort, he proceeded to pester him with a pop quiz. They couldn't have shared a moment or two, enjoying the seeming calm of the sea amidst life chaos. It was funny when someone said, uh, assumed, and your mate's paying for you, isn't that right, Christian? Like, everywhere Christian goes, what's-his-face pays for him. And um, Tom would have none of that and stepped in and said, oh, if you've forgotten your money, I'll, you can pay me back. Or something along those lines and I thought that was a, an interesting moment Jan Brunt says so Tony seems happy at last finally away from those miserable selfish men who wasted her money in youth good for her we get only the barest description of her life with Erica and Elizabeth which is a shame there is tantalizing details here and there like in the last book when Tony was preparing a birthday present for a friend who is the friend what is their relationship what did the friend advise when she was deciding whether to marry Permanida or Permanida the walrus for such a long book, there's sometimes a frustrating lack of detail. There really is. It's so strange how long this book has been so far, and at, at times it feels like we've hardly had a chance to even find our bearings. Like, it's just all happening and quickly, and I don't know. It's like it's hard to keep up. So that said, let's move on to chapter 7. <coughs> oh, jeez, excuse me. Chapter 7. 
Winter had come. Christmas had passed. It was January 1875. The snow which covered the footwalks in the firm trodden mass mingled with sand and ashes was piled on either side of the road in high mounds that were growing greyer and more porous all the time, for the temperature was rising. The pavements were wet and dirty, the grey gables dripped, but above all stretched the heavens a cloudless tender blue, while millions of light atoms seemed to dance like crystal notes in the air. It was a lively sight in the centre of the town, for this was Saturday and market day as well. Under the pointed arches of the town hall, arcades, the butchers had their stalls and weighed out their wares red-handed. The fish market, however, was held around the fountain in the market square itself. Here, fat old women with hands in muffs from which most of their fur was worn off, warming their feet at little cold braziers, guarded their slippery wares and tried to cajole the servants and housewives into making purchases. There was no fear of being cheated. The fish would certainly be fresh, for the most of them were still alive. The luckiest ones were even swimming about in pails of water rather than cra- rather cramped for space but perfectly lively. Others lay with dreadfully goggling eyes and labouring gills clinging to life and slapping the marble slab desperately with their tails until such a time as fate was at hand when somebody would seize them and cut their throats with a crunching sound. Great fat eels writhed and wreathed about in extraordinary shapes. There were deep vats full of black masses of crabs from the Baltic. Once in a while a big flounder gave such a desperate leap that he sprang right off his slab and fell down upon the slippery pavement among all the refuse and had to be picked up and severely admonished by his possessor. Broad Street at midday was full of life. School children with knapsacks on their backs came along the street, filing in it with laughter and chatter, snowballing each other with the half-melting snow. <coughs> Excuse me. Smart young apprentices passed with Danish sailor caps or suits cut after the English model, carrying their portfolios and obviously pleased with themselves for having escaped from school. Among the crowd were settled, grey-bearded, highly respectable citizens wearing the most irreproachable national liberal expression on their faces and tapping their sticks along the pavement. These looked across with interest to the glazed brick front of the town hall where the double guard was stationed for the senate was in session the sentries trod their beat wearing wearing their cloaks their guns on their shoulders phlegmatically stamping their feet in the dirty half-melted snow they met in the center of their beat looking at each other exchanged a word turned and moved away each to his own side sometimes the lieutenant would pass his coat collar turned up his hands in his pockets on the track of some grisette, yet at the same time permitting himself to be admired by young ladies of good family, and then each sentry would stand at attention in front of his box, looked at himself from head to foot, and present arms. It would be a little time yet before they would perform the same salute before the members of the Senate. The sitting lasted some three quarters of an hour. It would probably adjourn before that. But one of the sentries suddenly heard a short, discreet whistle from within the building. At the same moment, the entrance was illumined by the red uniform of Hulifeld the Beadle with his dress, sword and cocked hat. He 
His air of preoccupation was simply enormous as he uttered a stealthy lookout and hastily withdrew. At the same moment, approaching steps were heard on the echoing flags within. The sentries faced front faced inflated their chest, stiffened their necks, grounded their arms, and then, with a couple of rapid motions, presented arms. Between them, there had appeared, lifting this top hat, a gentleman of scarcely medium height, with one light eyebrow higher than the other, and the pointed ends of his moustache extending beyond his pallid cheeks. Senator Thomas Buttonbrook was leaving the town hall today, long before the end of the sitting. He did not take the street to his own house, but turned to the right instead. He looked correct, spotless, and elegant, as with the rather hopping step peculiar to him, he walked along Broad Street, constantly saluting people whom he met. (coughs) (coughs) Oh, jeez, excuse me. Whom he met. Uh, He wore white kid gloves, and he had his stick with the silver handle under his left arm, a white dress tie peeped forth from between the lapels of his fur coat. But his head and face, despite their careful grooming, looked rather seedy. People who passed him noticed that his eyes were watering and that he held his mouth shut in a peculiar, cautious way. It was twisted a little to one side, and one could see by the muscles of his cheeks and temples that he was clenching his jaw. Sometimes he swallowed, as if a liquid kept rising in his mouth. Well, Buttonbrook. So, you are cutting the session. That is something new. Somebody sat out unexpectedly to him at the beginning of Mill Street. It was his friend and admirer, Stephen Kistenmarker, whose opinion on all subjects was the echo of his own. Stephen Kistenmarker had a full greying beard, bushy eyebrows, and a long nose full of large paws. He had retired from the wine business a few years back with a comfortable sum, and his brother, Edouard, carried it on by himself. He lived now the life of a private gentleman, but being rather ashamed of the fact, he always pretended to be overwhelmed with work. I'm wearing myself out, he would say, stroking his grey hair, which he curled with the tongs. But what's a man good for but to wear himself out? He stood hours on change, gesturing imposingly, but doing no business. He held a number of unimportant offices, the latest one being director of the city bathing establishments, but he also functioned as juror, broker and executor and labourer with such zeal that the perspiration dripped from his brow. There is a session, isn't there, Buttonbrook, and you are taking a walk. Oh, it's you, said the senator in a low voice, moving his lips cautiously. I'm suffering frightfully. I'm nearly blind with pain. Pain? Where? toothache since yesterday i did not close my eyes last night i have not been to the dentist yet because i had business in the office this morning and then i did not like to miss the sitting but i couldn't stand it any longer i'm on my way to brush where is it here on the left side lower jaw back tooth it is decayed of course the pain is simply unbearable goodbye kister macca you can understand that i am in a good deal of a hurry yes of course don't you think i am too awful lot to do goodbye good luck have it out, get it over with at once, always the best way. Thomas Buddenbrook went on biting his jaws together, though it made the pain worse to do so. It was a furious, burning, boring pain, starting from the infected back tooth and affecting the whole side of the jaw. The inflammation throbbed like red-hot hammers. It made his face burn and his eyes water. His nerves were terribly affected by the sleepless night he had spent. 
He had to control himself just now, lest his voice break as he spoke. He entered a yellow-brown house in Mill Street and went up to the first story, where a brass plate on the door said Brech Dentist. He did not see the servant who opened the door. The corridor was warm and smelled of beefsteak and cauliflower. Then he suddenly inhaled the sharp odour of the waiting room into which he was ushered. Sit down one moment, shrieked the voice of an old woman. It was Josephus, who sat in his shining cage at the end of the room and regarded him sidewise out of his venomous little eyes. The senator sat down at the round table and tried to read the jokes in a volume of Lichgangblatter, flung down the book and pressed the cool silver handle of his walking stick against his cheek. He closed his burning eyes and groaned. There was not a sound except for the noise made by Josephus as he bit and clawed at the bars of his cage. Her brech might not be busy, but he owed it to himself to make his patient wait a little. Thomas Buddenbrook stood up precipitately and drank a glass of water from a bottle on the table. It tasted and smelled of chloroform. Then he opened the door into the corridor and called out in an irritated voice. If there were nothing very important to prevent it, would her breast kindly make haste? He was suffering. And immediately the bald forehead, hooked nose and grizzled moustache of the dentist appeared in the door of the operating room. If you please, he said, if you please, shrieked Josephus. The senator followed on the invitation. He was not smiling. A bad case, thought Herbrecht, and turned pale. They passed through the large light room to the operating chair in front of one of the two largest windows. It was an adjustable chair with an upholstered headrest and green plush arms. As he sat down, Thomas Buddenbrook briefly explained what the trouble was. Then he leaned back his head and closed his eyes. Her brech screwed up the chair a bit and got to work on the tooth with a tiny mirror and a pointed steel instrument. His hands smelled of almond soap, his breath of cauliflower and beefsteak. We must proceed to extraction, he said after a while, and turned still paler. Very well, proceed then, said the senator, and shut his eyes more tightly. There was a pause. Her brech prepared something at his chest of drawers and got out his instruments. Then he approached the chair again. I'll paint it a little, he said, and began at once to apply a strong-smelling liquid in generous quantities. Then he gently implored the patient to sit very still and open his mouth very wide. And then he began. Thomas Buddenbrook clutched the plush armrests with both his hands. He scarcely felt the forceps close around his tooth, but from the grinding sensation in his mouth and the increasingly painful, really agonizing pressure on his whole head, he was made amply aware that the thing was underway. Thank God, he thought, now it can't last long. The pain grew and grew to limitless, incredible heights. It grew to an insane, shrieking, inhumane torture, tearing his entire brain. It approached the catastrophe. Here we are, he thought. Now I must just bear it. It lasted three or four seconds. Her brush's nervous exertions communicated themselves to Thomas Buttonbrook's whole body. He was even lifted up a little off his chair, and he heard a soft squeaking noise coming from the dentist's throat. Suddenly there was a fearful blow, a violent shaking as if his neck were broken, accompanied by a quick cracking, crackling noise. The pressure was gone, but his head buzzed. The pain throbbed madly in the inflamed and ill-used jaw, and he had the clearest impression that the thing had not been successful. 
that the extraction of the tooth was not the solution of the difficulty, but merely a premature catastrophe, which only made matters worse. Herbrecht had retreated. He was leaning against his instrument cupboard, and he looked like death. He said, the crown, I thought so. Thomas Buddenbrook spat a little blood into the blue basin at his side, for the gum was lacerated. He asked, half-dazed, what do you think? What about the crown? The crown broke off, her senator. I was afraid of it. The tooth was in a very bad condition, but it was my duty to make the experiment. What next? Leave it to me, her senator. What will you have to do now? Take out the roots with a lever. There are four of them. Four. Then you must take hold and lift four times. Yes, unfortunately. Well, this is enough for today, said the senator. He started to rise, but remained seated and put his head back instead. My dear sir, you mustn't demand the impossible of me, he said. I'm not very strong on my legs just now. I have had enough for today. Will you be so kind as to open the window a little? Her breach did so. It will be perfectly agreeable to me, her senator, if you came in tomorrow or next day at whatever hour you like, and we can go on with the operation. If you will permit me, I will just do a little more rinsing and penciling to reduce the pain somewhat. He did the rinsing and penciling, and then the senator went. Herbrecht accompanied him to the door, pale as death, extending his last remnant of strength in sympathetic shoulder shruggings. One moment, please, shrieked Josephus as they passed through the waiting room. He still shrieked as Thomas Buttonbrook went down the steps. With a lever, yes, that was tomorrow. What should he do now? Go home and rest, sleep if he could. The actual pain in the nerve seemed deadened in his mouth. It was on only a dull, heavy, burning sensation. Home, then. He went slowly through the streets, mechanically changing greetings with those whom he met. His look was absent and wandering, as though he were absorbed in thinking how he felt. He got as far as Fisher's Lane and began to descend the left-hand sidewalk. After twenty paces, he felt nauseated. I'll go over to the public house and take a drink of brandy, he thought and began to cross the road, but just as he reached the middle, something happened to him. It was precisely as if his brain was seized and swung around faster and faster in circles that grew smaller and smaller until it crashed with enormous, brutal, pitiless force against a stony centre. He performed a half-turn, fell, and struck the wet pavement with arms outstretched. As the street ran steeply downhill, his body lay much lower than his feet. He fell upon his face, beneath which presently a little pool of blood began to form. His hat rolled a little way off down the road. His fur coat was wet with mud and slosh. His hands in their white kid gloves lay outstretched in a puddle. Thus he lay and thus he remained until some people came down the street and turned him over. Wow, okay. Not a very successful trip to the dentist by the sounds of things. Aren't you glad we have the dentists we have today? Alright, everyone, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.